This episode of the Fabulous Learning Nerds is sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTIs, counselor, and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. As leaders, we often work towards getting the best from our people. Setting expectations, managing deadlines, reviewing performance are all common strategies. But what if it goes far deeper than this? What if maximizing performance really meant developing our people into the best people they could be, and this in turn would give us the best results? Well, that's a whole new ballgame. This week's guest helps us understand this idea. Gregory Offner is one of the most in-demand experts on the topic of professional performance and navigating disruption. His clients include Fortune 100 companies, and he's often asked to keynote at conferences where industry leaders and executives turn to him for new perspectives on how to elevate performance, eliminate disengagement, and yeah, make work suck less. He's also a former dueling piano player, which makes our discussion even that more entertaining. You have to check this episode out, so let's get started. They are the fabulous learning nerds. Cause if you're tired of the old ways of getting it done, you've got the fabulous learning nerds. Scott, Dan, and Abby are making it fun. The best ideas that you've ever heard. So everybody spread the word. They're gonna keep you with turning the fabulous learning nerds. Fabulous learning nerds. Oh yeah! Hey folks, welcome to another fantastic episode of your Fabulous Learning Nerds. I'm Scott Schutte, your host, and with us, you love him, Dan Coonrod. Dan the man. Oh yeah. Mr. Coonrod. Sir. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, Scott. How are you? I feel like that was very like dramatic. You are. Like, I feel like someone in the background. You it. are dramatic, sir. That I will say. Wow, that I don't know if that's great. I don't know. I don't know, but you are the king of the long pause. <laughs> dare I say? Uh, I would love. I would love to blame my internet on that. Uh, I don't think it's true, but if I could continue to blame my internet on that, that would be great. You know, we could blame the internet for many <laughs> things today. Um, I'm just surprised that you're just good and not fair to midway. That's true. A, That's true. It's been a couple of weeks since we had the drops, or I had to bring it back. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I feel like I failed you. I failed our audience. I apologize. No failure on this show. <laughs> no failure. Hey, how was your Father's Day? Ooh, my Father's Day was pretty good. It was. Uh, it was nice. It was relaxing. Uh, if truth be told, uh, I like slept in and uh did nothing it was fantastic <laughs> that's awesome i got to see my kid oh that's awesome i was gonna say i saw i went to go see my dad the day before uh and just kind of hung out with him for a minute and see how he was doing <clears throat> and he was like he was like that this is great this is great 
you know, I worry so much about getting up and then, you know, Sunday you know, I want to do nothing but sleep in and everybody's like, oh, let's go do something with dad. So I appreciate it. And that was unintentional because originally I was going to be super busy Sunday afternoon. And I was just like, that's like the best idea ever. I'm going to steal that. So that's what I did. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I got a staycation coming up and it's going to be couch city for me. I'm telling you that right now. So, um, enough on Amen. the Father's Day. <laughs> we have, uh, of course, our other special host that you love, um, and she, the Duchess of Design, uh, Abby Dawson. Everybody. Abby. Hey, Scott. How you doing? Doing good. That's fantastic. How are things in your neck of the woods? Last time it was buggy and hot. That is pretty much the same. It's been like 100 really? degrees for the past oh seven gosh. days and no rain. Again, everybody's kind of rain hot. today. <gasps> rain is good. Rain is mm-hmm. fantastic. I love rain. It rains every day down here. I mean, lots of it. It's kind of a thing. It's kind of a groovy thing. Well, that's awesome. Hey, we're also joined by a very, very special guest, everybody. Mr. Gregory Offner is with us. And we're going to get to know all about Gregory in a little segment that we call What's Your Deal? Hey, man. What's your deal? Gregory. Scott. Hey, sir. What's your deal, my friend? Hey, I'm really glad that y'all brought me in here because talking to an audience of learning and development professionals, people that are interested in bettering themselves, bettering others, it fits really nicely in with my deal. The short version is I spent 15 years as a corporate executive, but in that same time, I had a, a second life. One that many people didn't know about. I was a dueling piano performer. I played professionally all over the world on five continents, Vegas to Paris. So my day job involved speaking and selling to executives in boardroom in boardrooms. And my night job involved singing and smiling and playing songs for a bunch of drunks in bar rooms. But they both prepared me to do what I do now, which is working as a professional keynote speaker. And so I travel the world and I speak at conferences for associations, for corporations. I even do workshops to help organizations develop cultures of high-performing, highly fulfilled people, ultimately with the goal of making work suck less. I love that. I have to ask a question based on what you just told me. Actually, it's a two-part question. Are you ready? Fair. Fire, fire away. What song do you now can't stand because you were a dueling pianist? I have an idea what that is. And then now is what, your, what is your favorite song from that... Um, second life that you had all right so i i I, before i mean i know my answer but i want to hear what you think the answer is i'm always fascinated to hear this this answer oh i think piano man you would hate by now that would be my thing i would imagine you played it like three or four times a night and you would be sick of it that would be my guess okay abby dan do you do you do you want to hazard a guess before i share what the actual song that just creates that nails on a chalkboard feeling for me and inside is Do, do you want to hazard a guess I would think maybe like a La Bamba or something like that, where they just want you to bang a lot on the piano for drunk people. That seems like something that would okay. get old. <laughs> okay. I don't know the name of the song, but the one that goes da 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 that would be my. Is that guess. like La Cucaracha, Daniel? Is that what you're thinking? Like the. It's a Mexican no, hat dance, I don't, I, Daniel. That's the Mexican no, hat that's, dance you did. I'm trying to remember what it's from. But it's not, I don't think it's either of those, but maybe it is because I don't know. That's, that's my poor attempt at a guess. There you no, go. No, that's, that, that's, that's fair. People always assume, 
uh, that is going to be Piano Man. And that is one of the most frequently requested songs any night at the piano bar. But I'll tell you, the song that I really loathe is Bohemian Rhapsody. And I'll tell you why. Because as a musician, I love the song as a listener. But as a performer, it's one of those songs where the crowd is either in it, it's the best experience you've ever had at a piano bar, or they expect me to be Freddie Mercury. And when I'm not, they're so sorely disappointed that I'm now faced with an effectively (laughs) seven minute long song that's way out of my range. It's incredibly uncomfortable to sing. That's not fun as a performer to sing because it's meant to be, you know, a multiple part opera. Um, (laughs) And it's just, you know, it's one of those that people go, oh, man, do Bohemian Rhapsody. And and it comes with a disclaimer. Okay, now, listen, we're going to try this. But if your heart isn't in this, it ain't happening. And I'd say 50 percent of the time we sort of stop right after the first verse because their their heart isn't in it. And then we move on to like a Bette Midler song um, to really win the crowd back over. <laughs> that's a big shift. That's Freddie so Mercury awesome. to Bette Midler. <laughs> that's, well, that's what it's all about at the piano bar. Really, it's about contrast. Because the question I get asked most is who wins? You know, like who wins the duel? Am I always the winner? Am I the better piano player? And it's really not between the piano players. It's between the piano players and the audience. Like that's the duel. You've got money. We want it. And so the duel is at the end of the night. How much of your money did we get? And the one of the ways that we do that is by manufacturing tension. I mean, tension and release is what keeps a piece of music interesting. You know, if everything was at a 10 in terms of volume level, we would get overwhelmed. If everything was really quiet during a piece of music, we might wind up falling asleep. So it's the difference in the volume and in the speed of the piece that really keeps us interested in a piece of music. So what we do in the in the in the night in the experience of a piano bar is we create tension by playing songs we know you love, but then we will also play songs that we know you hate because you will come up with money and a new request to get us to stop playing that song. So it's a really fascinating battle that we sort of wage between us and the audience. And I see this in the corporate world too. When we think about a dead-end job, that's a job that either has way too much tension, so we're getting burnt out too quickly and we can't stick with it and we don't see any hope, or it's one of those jobs that like, sometimes I think about the folks who in, in the NovaCare complex here in Philadelphia, there are people who stand outside where the Eagles practice and their sole job is to hold a checklist and ask you when you drive up to the little parking barrier, are you on the checklist? And if you are, they open the barrier and if you're not, they, they keep it shut. To me, that job is too much release. Like there's just nothing going on. Like what is exciting about doing that job? I feel like it must be punishment detail for these people. Like they did something wrong maybe the week before and now they have to man the parking barriers. So that concept of tension and release is important. And it's both from the piano bar and even into the corporate world that we have something that is oftentimes enjoyable, but oftentimes stressful. Does that make sense? The follow? Yeah. I used to um, actually tell our VP... one of my early jobs in training, I was writing a lot of um, knowledge-based content. And there were times where I was like, oh my God, this is so boring. If I have to write another article about how a button works, I swear I'm going to lose my mind. But at lunch, we would watch TV and one of the folks I worked with loved those how it's made things. And we were watching an episode about how shovels were made. And I was like, y'all, if I ever complain about having to write how a button works again, remind me that I could be writing content for how to make a shovel. And I'm lucky. (laughs) So I needed that perspective because that would be the opening and shutting gate for me, writing content about how shovels are made. (laughs) What a fantastic segue, because I know that we were going to spend some time chatting um, a lot about 
this idea of performance and making work not suck as much. So without further ado, let's go ahead. Let's dive into our topic of the week. All right, Gregory, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the performance process. Um, talk to us. What what does that mean? What's the performance process all about? Yeah, sure. So the performers, and I want to, I want to emphasize performers and why it matters. Yeah. So it's the performers process uh, because we've got another piece of material called the performance agreement. The performance agreement is the keynote that I'm known for. And the concept found within is all about this promise that we have with the audience when we're up on stage as a performer and that we as employees have to our employer. And it's a reciprocal exchange. It's not a one-way street. So the employer also has promises and obligations to the employee. We're not talking about the stuff you find on your employment agreement, right? Not the legalese. We're talking about something else. And this idea sort of came to me when I was thinking about, I was actually sorting through a memory box as my parents were moving out of my childhood home. They're selling it, moving somewhere else. And I found all of the tickets from when my dad and I would go to baseball games and football games and hockey games. And I'm very nostalgic. And, and so I've saved a lot of this memorabilia over the years. And nowadays we don't have tickets, like not like we used to anyway. We have them on our cell phone or maybe we print them out at home. But these were actual tickets that you know either got mailed to you or that you picked up at the box office. And it was fascinating to me because on the front is sort of the, the promises that the uh, venue or the artist makes to the audience. Yeah. So it's like, here's where you're going for the event. Here's what time it starts. Here's where you'll be sitting, how much it costs to get in and sort of, you know, here's what we're doing. Like if the Phillies are playing the Dodgers, that's on the ticket. Yeah. So who's playing who? If you ever flip over the back of the ticket, there's now promises that we make the players and the venue, you know, it's all the rules like beware of flying bats and balls. Uh, don't run out onto the field. Don't, do something that would disrupt from another fan's enjoyment of the experience. And in many ways, that ticket is a lot like the, per, the um, employment agreement that we have between us and between the place we work. But that's not what I'm talking about when we're discussing this idea of the performance agreement, of this promise between the two parties. I'm talking about the unspoken rules. Like, like when you're in the audience and there's a concert going on, you cheer when they're done a song. And when they are finished the concert and they leave the stage, you yell one more song, right? We all do that encore, one more song, yeah. And then the band comes back out and they, they see that's part of the unspoken agreement. It's not on the ticket, but if we yell one more song loud enough, they're going to come back out. That's, that's an agreement. And similarly, in the world of baseball, even if you're winning the game or even if the season's basically done, we expect the folks on the field to go out there and perform at their best to give it their all. And they in turn expect us to cheer, make noise, be crazy loud when the opposing team has a tough place so that it's harder for them to concentrate. These are, these are rules. These are agreements that we have between the two parties. And those exist in the work world too. And in my keynote, I talk about what some of those are and how the fact that they've been, if not forgotten, certainly pushed to the side a bit, how that's contributing to a lot of the dysfunction that, that we seem to feel in the work world right now, this imbalance between what the employer wants of the employee and what the employee wants of that work experience. Now, how does that relate to what you asked about the performer's process? Well, one of the biggest competitive advantages an organization can create today right now is speed of knowledge acquisition. If you can learn, unlearn, 
and relearn skills faster than your rivals. That is a tremendous competitive advantage. It may be the most important competitive advantage an organization can possess right now because of the speed of change, because of how quickly the world business tools are evolving around us. Our people must be resilient and adaptable. And when I think about the world of performance, one of the things that I learned at a very early age was how to learn, unlearn, and relearn pieces of music. In fact, the average performer knows thousands of pieces of music. At least they, they, they know it deep in their mind. They may not be able to recall it instantly, but show them that piece of sheet music and the muscle memory takes over. But when I look at how we develop people internally in the business world, you know, I spent 15 years building sales teams internationally and working for large Fortune 100 and 500 organizations. I didn't see that same level of, um, of performance cultivation, which is to say there are four steps in the performance process. We learn, we practice, we rehearse, and then we go perform. And when I look at the way air quotes, you know, traditional business does it right now, they sort of skip those middle two steps. They go, here's the material you got to learn. All right, now go perform it. And many organizations don't create space for the practice and rehearsal that's necessary for mastery. That's necessary to master even the skill of skill acquisition. So it's, it's sort of a meta you know, concept when I talk about this, but learning how to learn at a corporate, in a corporate setting, not, not like we do in school where we're just taught study for the test, you pass the test, great. Who cares if you remember who won the war of 1812? I mean, that's kind of what it feels like. We're just there to get the degree, but in, in business, it's different. And that's one of the challenges we've run into right now in terms of developing leaders and retaining people is that you've got these employees who are coming from a culture of learn to pass the test. And they try to apply that in the corporate world, which is work to get the promotion. And they find that, well, that's, that's actually not what's happening. And businesses are getting burnt out trying to figure out, well, how do I satisfy the, the desires of these people? Because they just expect, you know, I've been here a month. When's, when do I get my next promotion? And it doesn't work like that in the business world. Really what we want to cultivate within our people is this ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn faster. And so that's really what we do with the performers process is we, we work with organization senior leadership to find out what their learning culture is right now. And then we make some suggestions. We try to create space for practice time, for rehearsal time, so that when they're out on the, you know, air quotes, the business field, yeah, uh, performing, they're having fun and they're doing it at a high level. So, Greg, I have a question for you. I love that you understand the value of practice and rehearsal. And as a performer, I'm curious, I've always thought that's also an opportunity where you find how you do it as an individual. And that often gets overlooked too. Like you present information on what your goal is, but how everybody gets there sometimes is a little different. Their flavor is a little different. Um, what are your thoughts on that part of the process also being somewhere where people find how they're going to do it uh, with their style of, of that objective is? Well, yeah, it sounds to me, Abby, like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so stop me if I'm wrong. It sounds to me like you're talking about a culture of experimentation. And yes. that is, for that to exist, we have to have psychologically safe spaces. And I, I, like, I hate even saying that because it's such like a weird, like, can we create a safe space here? But what I mean to say is failing must be acceptable. I don't even want to stop there. I want to say failing must be encouraged. And we need to reframe what failing means. 
And I'm not going to give like some, you know, funny motivational speaker analogy, like it's your first attempt in learning. <laughs> but I, I do mean that it needs to be okay for individuals, especially at an entry level. They need to be in a place where they are told and are shown by the actions that their bosses then exhibit when it happens that failure is okay, right? We don't want to repeat the same mistakes, but we want to develop our style so that we understand how we work best. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, I think so. Um, and that practice and rehearsal in order to have that kind of safe space and uh, that feedback to you is not an individual place either. It's another place where leadership is exercised and um, partnership and trust is developed. Yes. And in tandem with what we're talking about today, another challenge exists. And that's when we look at corporate America compared to any other high performance organization. There is a dearth of non-management development happening, which is to say there's no coaching. There's no coaching taking place. You go into any pro sports team, any pro. I mean, I'm a vocalist and I have several coaches and I'm not at the level of like a Lady Gaga, right? Where I have an entourage going around with me, but I have a diction and speech coach. I've got a, I've got a singing, a vocal performance coach. And then I have two ENTs that are consistently monitoring, monitoring my vocal cords because my voice has been damaged so badly throughout the course of my career. I almost lost the whole reason I do what I do now is because I almost lost the ability to speak. I had to have 15 surgeries. Uh, from 2015 till the last one was October of 2020 to completely rebuild my vocal function. So if all of those performers, right, whether it's in sports or, or music or wherever, if they have coaches, and of course they have managers, people that sign their contract that tell them what they're going to get paid. If they have coaches, but we're talking about business, the largest you know revenue driver just generally on the planet, why aren't there more coaches? That's where you get the safe space to learn, to iterate, to fail. Not with, the, not with the person who can sign your check or fire you. It's with a coach. And yet most businesses don't make coaches available to their people till the VP or above level, right? So that's about eight years that it takes someone to hit VP level generally within their career. And it can be longer in some industries, a little bit shorter, but not by much in most. So eight years of development opportunities we're missing when people's brains are probably at their most malleable because they're just coming out of college and into a new role. So they're still sort of in that learning mode. So there's a lot that we have an opportunity to um, adjust right now to, to, to get it better. And I think, Abby, to your point about developing an individual style, it starts with how we learn and how we're coached throughout that process. I am so glad you brought up this idea of coaching. We were recently chatting all about this very real phenomena of leaders not being developed. So I get the promotion. Now what? Well, I'm going to learn by making mistakes or I'm, in my experience, not learn at all. And a lot of times I'll tell you as an employee, I'm constantly reminding myself when things kind of go upside down, that it's not their fault. You know what I'm saying? That makes me feel better. Least, like I, I don't like what's going on, but it's really not their fault because have they been taught any better? No. So then the onus comes on me. How do I manage upward or how do I pour into my passions and invite amazing people like you onto our show so that we can talk about this and find solutions? Yeah, I think about examples, uh, to, you know, to what you're talking about, Scott, you know, examples from the military. Um, there are war game simulations that our soldiers go through. 
but they're generally once every, my buddy Greg would correct me on this because he sort of helps oversee them for this one branch of the military. Um, I want to say they happen every two to four years, uh, but they're most intense before a unit's going to get deployed. So generally, if a unit's getting sent to these war game simulations, you know, they happen out somewhere in the desert in Nevada or wherever, and it's, it's sometimes it's a month long process. Um, but once your unit's been sent there, there's a good bet you're going to be deployed somewhere in the world within, I think it's like a year or something like that. Yeah. But otherwise they really don't go through combat simulation. Like you either figure it out or you don't. I mean, those are the skills that you sort of learn on the job and in combat, but the business community spends 98% of its financial resources, training people, things that they're going to learn on the job. What I call operational knowledge. So if you, if you look at the $300 billion that's spent globally in learning and development in corporate training, 98% of it, when we break it down as to, you know, what is it actually spent on? It's job specific, technical or operational training. Like if you're an accountant, how to be a better accountant. If you're a salesperson, how to sell better. If you drive trucks, how to be a better truck driver. Only 2% of that spend is on managerial, right? Or non-technical skills, what I'll call aspirational development, helping the person become a better person so that any role they go to benefits from this development. So like we think of negotiation training, communications training, confidence, so executive presence, all of these things that make us better in any role, but aren't available to us until we hit a very senior level. That's a real, that's a real challenge for people as they're trying to get developed within their position, because when they become a leader, they've had no development to become a leader. They're just good at being an accountant or a truck driver or whatever it is that they do. Greg, I'd like to expand on that point a little too. Um, and it's not just leadership, but just in general being a good employee. So if you if we only train uh, folks who work in training how to use Articulate and these platforms that we de- develop trainings in, we're not teaching them how to work with our tech teams or our HR teams. And they need those people's skills, right? It doesn't matter if you can write great training in a platform if you don't know how to get the information for the training from your partners. Um, so I. I absolutely have seen it overlooked and the impacts are pretty um, big and hard to overcome once they're kind of in place uh, because they can look like other things too. They can look like, oh, this person is just hard to get along with. Well, maybe, or maybe you never took the time to learn how to work with them. You know, I, 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 I absolutely love this point. And I think what gets overlooked a lot, I think something that you're really kind of hitting the nail on the head with is so many people who go into leadership ha- are so poorly prepared and that impacts the performance of their teams and so all of this time that we spend like with fire and forget training on people and then like we're like, okay cool go learn it go do it okay cool you've been trained you should have it figured out but then we don't spend any time training their leaders and so when their leaders get there it's just static they're just introducing static into the system and all of that training get, becomes less effective because you have a less effective leader, a less effective manager. And you're right. I see it all the time. Like nobody gets leadership training until they're hitting that director level, that senior director, that VP level. And so you've just got like this whole swath of middle management that are introducing static into the system. And that's why this performer's process can become such a valuable component of a leader's development. Because when the leader is imbued with the skills and the knowledge 
of knowledge, again, I said this conversation was going to get a little meta, right? So we're talking about the knowledge of knowledge development. But when a leader understands how people learn and master concepts and skills, and then if we can get organizations to be better at that skill acquisition, at that mastery process, that leader has now developed a competitive advantage in their team that's really difficult to copy. I mean, before we started recording, Daniel, we were talking about tech, right? You mentioned you've got an NVIDIA camera. And I mean, NVIDIA is a very interesting example when we talk about competitive advantages because they were doubling down in this 3D graphics chip world several years before you know the Oculus Rift and all these other tech tools became really prominent. So they've now created because of their foresight, a competitive advantage that a lot of these analysts are saying, you know, AMD and other chip companies, it's going to take, it would take years for them to catch up if NVIDIA just stopped innovating today. So there's really too big a delta. When leaders, so to get away from tech and to get back into our world of leadership and learning, when leaders create a culture where skill acquisition is taught as a, as a concept and it becomes a competitive advantage, because your people can learn things faster than your competitors, you will always be a step ahead. Always, always. But we're not doing it because when we, to your point, I forget what you said, that kind of like fire and forget method of, of, of training. What do we do? We block out three days in the calendar, once a quarter, if, if we're lucky, right? So often it's once a year. We block out three days in the calendar, pull everybody out of the field, big dog and pony show. You know, the senior leader gets up and talks for an hour. Good job, everybody. Super happy. And then we go into breakouts and there's lots of crappy food there, like tons of sugars. Now we're on a sugar high early in the morning. Then we crash late in the afternoon. So three days later, now we're supposed to take all this knowledge, somehow assimilate it and apply it on Monday. But oh yeah, my inbox is full because I got nine bajillion emails from while I was sitting there. And all I've been thinking about was that deal that I really want to close or that project that's running behind him or my wife or my partner's calling and saying, this is going wrong at home. Like, we're not developing people in a way that ultimately lasts and truly benefits the employee. So it's how we're doing it and what we're doing. And that's this approach. So, you know, you ask, you brought me on, which I really appreciate. So like my whole approach to this is the performance agreement as a keynote brings this problem to light for the people in the audience. And we use music as a metaphor to do it because of my background as a dueling piano player. But very often executives or whomever's in the crowd will come up and say, hey, man, this is a problem we're dealing with. Where do you suggest we start? And there's really, there's two places. If they've got a culture where practice and rehearsal of skills is already built into the culture, then there are seven key areas. I call them the seven keys of success that an organization can focus on that they can start to develop within their people at an entry level. It doesn't really matter when you start, just that you start, but I'd recommend you do it at an entry level that will make them better as people. And what we've seen is that better people perform better. Someone with high emotional intelligence compared to someone with no emotional intelligence. On paper, they've got the same pedigree. They went to the same college, got the same grades, did the same job. The person who has a higher emotional intelligence is going to be a better employee long-term for the reasons that you know Daniel and Abby were, and Scott were, were all talking about. But if the organization doesn't have that culture of practice and rehearsal, then that's where we start. And we work with the leaders to, to explain this is what mastery will do for your organization when we talk about skill development and skill acquisition, and here's how you create it. If someone was wondering, either I'm looking for a company that does this well, or I'm trying to avoid companies that don't, or if I'm working for a company and I'm trying to say, are we good at this or are we not? Are there 
things you can look for that say, maybe this is an opportunity for us to grow. Maybe we're not doing this well. Like what would be symptomatic of, of someone who would benefit from changing their processes and incorporating these concepts? Organizations that are struggling, that's actually a, a really interesting question because there's, there's no silver bullet answer because every organization is different. They all, they all, well, let's back up. There are a lot of similarities in the L&D programs for organizations. They want to tell us that they're different, but really there's a lot of similarities, but the markers are different. Yeah. It's sort of like if all of us went to the doctor and mentioned a symptom, the checklist might look a little different depending on the industry. So there's industry averages for tenure. So, you know, organization ABC could come and say, oh, we have um, turnover that starts really at two to three years pretty aggressively. Well, that might be right for your industry. So that's not really a good metric or a good symptom for me to look at. But just by asking individuals in stay interviews or in exit interviews, what their development was like, if I can get access or insight to that from an HR professional within an organization, I can really start to understand the culture. And when you understand the culture, what you're learning about is what each of the people within an organization are like. Because a company, I'm bouncing around a bit here, but if everybody will stay with me, I think it'll connect. Organizations don't have culture. In a way, they rent it from each person they employ. And I like to think about it as if each person carried a little eyedropper with them. And that eyedropper is, is, is you. It's the essence of you. It's your culture, right? It's the way you do things. It's how you think about life, your beliefs, your attitude. So whenever an individual goes into an organization, they put a little dropper of themselves into this big bucket that is the organization. And what's in that bucket is a hodgepodge of everybody else's droppers. The bigger your title, so the CEO, much bigger dropper, much bigger drop. The CEO's drop has a much bigger influence on the culture of the company. So an organization, in this sense, you know, renting its culture from people Whenever an organization says, I, I, I want to I affect culture change, you know, we're, we're, really, we're really passionate about culture and we want to change our culture to do this and this and this. That change starts with the transformation of the people. That's the only way you can achieve it. So it's not processes, it's people that we look at. And the best way to train people to develop them better is through this performance process. So how do we carve out space in organizations that are skipping the middle? Um, my experience is it's all performance. I, I don't even care if you're any good at it. Get the job done by five o'clock on Friday. And maybe, maybe we'll take time to take a look at how effective that was. But as long as we're delivering, then that's all I really care about. And I think that the great resignation is a reflection of that. Like every day I just get up and I perform, 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 perform. And I have no idea if I'm doing any good. Maybe um, once a year we have a conversation about it, but other than that, I'm, I'm just feeling lost and I, I don't feel valued. And I really feel like what you're talking about is that space, right? Identifying our people as being important and in creating this space for practice so we can get to mastery and ultimately competency. But if I don't have that, like, you know, I, I don't want to take away from all the things that you do, but, but we, where, where do we start? Well, you have to have an honest conversation. I mean, one of the things that's missing in work is honesty. And we need to look no further than the interview process to see that that's true. Because one of the most storied questions you're asked in an interview is, you know, where do you see yourself in three years? I don't know. I got, I got no idea what I'm having for dinner on Friday. But there's one safe answer. The safe answer is, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to be with this organization, maybe explore a role in management. I'd like to keep moving up. I'm really passionate about my career and advancement. And I see everybody's heads nodding and smiling because we all know that that's the air quotes, you know, that's the right answer. 
but it's not the real answer. And there's a real problem that that creates within an organization because now you've let people in based on a lie. All of our development is based on a lie because who's developing us? The person that can fire us. So how candid are we going to be about our shortcomings, about what we really believe, what we really think? We're going to meter that. If we're, if we're street smart, right, we're going to meter that. That becomes a real problem for any organization to cultivate development. So when we talk about where it starts, I mean, it's a real purpose of why am I here? What am I here to do today? And there's three types of people within any organization. And organizations love to spend time on these tests, like the Myers-Briggs or like the personality inventory. I mean, I, they, they have value. But what we've found is that there's three types of people in every organization. And there may be five that you meet when you go to heaven, but there's only three where you work. The first type are your keepers. The second type are your leapers. And the third type are your sleepers. And understanding what each of those categories want is the key to developing them, to getting that space. Because we, we've got time. There's a survey done out of the UK. They surveyed 2,000 employees. They said on average that they work 3.8 hours a day. They're at work for eight or more, but they actually work 3.8 hours a day. We are all masters at pretending like we're doing something. We're really good. We can find five different ways to get to the water cooler to save time. We can find all sorts of things to do on our computer that look like work. In fact, I saw a video on TikTok the other day that's, you know, two different angles. It's like what my boss sees and the person is working diligently at a keyboard. They look like they're really busy. And then it's what I see. And so the second view is this person just like highlighting and unhighlighting cells on an Excel spreadsheet, typing goggity goop into the one cell and then highlighting and unhighlighting it again. I mean, we have programs that are tracking mouse movements of people that are working remotely. Is that what we're paid to do? Move a mouse around? Why are we here? Businesses still aren't clear. Unless you're in a sales role, they're really not clear what it is that you're here to do. It's sort of like show up at eight, deal with whatever we give you, and then hopefully you've dealt with it by the time you know you leave at five, or maybe don't leave at five. Stay a little later. Try to get it all done. Hey, whatever. It's your role, your salary to enjoy. Thanks. So there's this really crazy setup in the work world right now where managers just haven't had to define exactly what success is for people, unless you've got a quota. If you've got a quota, it looks a little bit easier because I know that by Thursday, if I've already set my weekly quota, hit my weekly quota, then Friday, I, don't, I can just do whatever I want. That's how most sales roles are. You sort of bag off, you know, do whatever. Uh, but other jobs aren't. And folks are really sick of renting out their life to a corporation, not understanding what the impact is. I mean, that's what we're seeing. You brought up the great resignation, Scott. That's what this is. This is folks saying, you know, after two years of actually doing it remotely, the preceding 10 years, you told me we could never do it remotely because culture was so important. And now you want me back? You know, I think I'm good. I think I'm going to figure it I read an Instagram story about this guy who made $19 million making YouTube videos last year. You know, if I can make 50K, I think I'm good. So you know what, boss? I don't think I'll come back. I mean, that's what we're seeing play out. And I know that that's the anomaly, you know, $19 million. But again, if that's the anomaly, and your, your salary is 50K, like how hard is it to replicate 50K online? I'm sure you're smart. You could figure it out. And folks are saying, I'd rather take that bet than continue to go or work at a place where I don't feel like I'm making an impact. 
I don't really understand the purpose of my work each day. It feels like my purpose is just to try to God get through the day without, you know, maybe wishing I'd got into like a car accident on, on the way to work. Not like a serious one, but just one serious enough that I didn't have to go to the, the office that day. Like there was an excuse like, hey, the doctor said I need to take, you know, three days and just binge Netflix. So I'll see you in a little bit. I mean, it's, it's really a problem and it comes from this lack of candor and honesty at work, Scott. I love, love that answer. I, uh, I'm a huge proponent of like realistic honesty in the workplace. I had a guy who worked for me, absolutely brilliant, wonderful designer, super fantastic. And I knew in any given week he was giving me maybe 20 or 25%. But like his work was so good, I just didn't care. And so what, finally, eventually, like he, he rolled out, he moved to a new team. And I was like, hey, look, can we have a real quick talk? And he's like, yeah, sure. I was like, hey, man, I totally know that for like the past two and a half years, you've been giving me like 20, 25% of your day. Whoa. And he started, you know, you can see that nervousness. And I was like, no, it's okay. It was great. It was really good. And like, it never bothered me, but just you know, keep in mind as you're moving on to this next place, this next role, it might be a conversation you want to have with your upcoming leader about like just the work you do and when your best times are and like your, your, your bang bust cycle, like don't, don't, you know, mess that up. And I can't tell you how many times, like I knew there were people on my team, like 50% of the time were checked out. And just deciding to be okay with that because they were still making great things, still doing good things, still getting the work done. And as soon as like I was like, I'll just be okay with that. Like my relationship with my employees got so much better. Like I could have real and honest conversations. And like, so when things did get bad, I could be like, hey, we're on the wrong side here. We need to, we need to like fix things. And it would happen. Like they would go, okay, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll get on it. And that's, that comes from honesty. It comes from, realistic expectations and acceptance of how people work. And so many people are, just want to like assume that because a business is run like a machine, we need to treat people like machines and that's bad. Daniel, that happens because you created a safe space and real vulnerable in that conversation. Right. And I feel like that's one of the oh, things yeah. that's missing. You know, like everybody, Oh, I don't want to be vulnerable with, with my employees because that shows weakness or I don't want to, you know, talk about, what's real because that's really I, I maybe i have to have hr in the room and i want to talk about things that are real because that's really scary right um but i think it's such a critical part of, of what we do especially in the what gregory's talking about in this whole performance process so let's get back to this whole idea of, like i love what you talk about you know the best people are best for your organization and identifying those you know, those habits and those traits and really cultivating them to ensure that we can learn and, and grow faster and quicker. What, what are, other than emotional intelligence, which we can all agree on, what are some of those other things that we can do to, to have less sleepers in our organization and more keepers? So that's a, that's a great place to pick this back up. Cause on, on what Daniel is saying about his employee that, you know, was maybe given 20% during the day, that category of sleepers Neither of these three categories are, are bad. So our, 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 our goal as leaders is not to turn my sleepers into keepers or my leapers into keepers, right? So let's understand what they are. Keepers are what they sound like. They're the people that love what they do, who they're doing it with, where they're doing it. I mean, for them, it's not really a career 
they're not just like showing up for the paycheck for them. It's, it's, I mean, it's like, it's almost like a vocation. It's like a calling. They are called to do this work. They absolutely love it. And you've got two types of keepers. You've got rock stars and you've got your rock steadies. We all know what the rock star is, but the rock steady, when I think of rock steady, I think of this woman, Carol, who was a receptionist at this one insurance brokerage I worked for. She'd been there 20 plus years, had always been the receptionist, could have moved up in an executive assistant, taken this role or that role. Didn't want to. This was her job. She loved who she did it with. She loved that she could show up, leave, and that was it. There's there's no additional work, but she was rock steady. There's a lot of leaders out there that would say, I don't, I want a Carol that wants to be the CEO. Okay. Well, one, no. But two, we all need people like Carol. Every organization needs people that are rock steady, that aren't trying to claw their way up the corporate ladder, but that love the job they're doing want to do it to the best of their ability, but also want to leave. Because this this myth that we have to love our nine to five is really toxic. It's sort of like the equivalent of, of corporate toxic positivity when we think about our jobs. You don't have to love your nine to five. What I do believe is that if you don't love your nine to five, you have to love your five to nine, a.m. and p.m. What you do from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., that better light you up inside. Because there are some people who they go to work, is my job, I'm, I'm here at eight. I'm going to do a good job. There, that's Carol. I'm rock steady, but I'm also, I'm leaving at five and that's it. Don't want any more. Don't want any less. Thank you very much. I know Carol has something that she, that lights her up inside. I saw a video today about a janitor. Maybe you saw this, Abby, cause you're in the, in the, in the Tennessee area. I think this guy was in Tennessee. Um, a janitor just outside of Nashville, um, singing, don't stop believing for his elementary school class. Oh my God. Like this guy could absolutely be a professional singer. Now, I don't know if, if he loves his day job, dislikes his day job, if it's just a job, but I know that he's got something that lights him up five to nine a.m. and p.m. That's his singing. I know that's his thing. So if we don't love our day job, that's okay, but we better have something else we do love outside of it that fuels us. So those are our, our two categories of sleepers. The leapers are folks who want to get from here to there. So maybe they're at a small organization to build up the street cred, you know, in the L&D world to, to go get a job with Amazon in their L&D department or wherever they'd want to go, right? A big organization. Or maybe they're at a big organization and they're trying to make a jump to a little, a little pond because they know they can go from, you know, like manager of learning to a uh, senior vice president of learning and development at, at, at a small company. So you get that big title, big prestige bump. The traditional school of leadership says that, you know, we want to get them to see the value in our organization and stay here and fully commit and become an A player. But what if we took a different tact? What if we instead helped them make that leap and then let them go out into the world as brand ambassadors? If we help them become all that they're capable of being and go on to the next role, when they get there, they will not shut up about how awesome we were as a place to work for. Because we helped them become what they wanted to be. Not try to morph them into what we wanted them to be, but we served them, of course, while they, you know, like Daniel was saying, like his guy, even at 20%, 30%, he was still hitting all the metrics, like still giving him exactly what he needed. How could we help that guy, that employee, I shouldn't assume it's a man, we should, how can we help that employee get where they want to go? So it's a new way to think about leapers. And, and that also helps with recruitment and retention. We can talk about that later. But so the last part, what you asked about, Scott, are the sleepers. A buddy of mine lives in New York and he one time fell asleep on the MTA. And he told me that when the bus driver woke him up, he had never been so scared in his life because it's dark. He knew he was on the bus and now he doesn't know where he is. He's in the bus depot. 
And he woke up with that, oh, hey, where am I? Type of type of vibe going on. Yeah. Panicked. Sleepers at work are kind of like my buddy falling asleep on the bus. They're not really sure what the purpose is of being here. They're not really tuned in or connected to an impact. And so our bodies, our brains are geared for energy conservation. When we don't think we need to exert ourselves, we don't. We rest. That's what sleepers are doing. They don't have a purpose. They don't have a passion for what they're doing at work. They're not connected with any impact. So they just kind of go to sleep. They coast. They're there for the paycheck and they'll stay as long as the check keeps coming. They'll do exactly the minimum until a leader comes along and wakes them up. And the sleepers are what we call today actively disengaged or disengaged employees. I call them the greatest transformational potential that we've yet to unlock within our business. Because one of two things happens when you wake up a sleeper. They either wake up and go, huh, what? Huh, this, this isn't my stop. I got to go. And they leap. They go somewhere else. We help them make that leap. Or they start to develop. They start to connect to something that we're doing. And perhaps they turn into a keeper. I love this idea. I think so many programs are only designed to help people become uh, leaders or or move up in an industry. And I think if we could care for more kinds of um, employees and do it in a learning environment, we could provide a lot more value. I worked in restaurants for a long time. I think they were instrumental in who I became, especially as a worker. And I knew so many people who didn't want to do more than wait tables or bartend. And they would get so frustrated. Inevitably, there is someone who will sit at your bar or sit at your table and go, what are you going to do when you grow up? And they're like, I'm doing it. And why isn't this okay? Like, I wish that there wasn't this attitude of what you're doing is not enough if they are doing a good job and are happy there. Right. The key is, though, how do you keep those folks happy? But Gregory, I love what you said. Waking up the sleeper you know, it takes some emotional intelligence and it takes a hard conversation. And, you know, I'll tell a story of a guy that worked for me. His name was Rich and he was a sleeper. And as a leader, I knew he was, but what do we do? I don't know. And I will tell you, I was in, um, I was in one of those leadership, you know, flash in a pan kind of things. And I had an aha moment, which led to a, a conversation of which all I really did was let him know that he was capable that I thought he was capable of more and that I believed that he could do a great job and that moving forward that I was going to be there for him no matter what. Uh, he turned into one of my most productive um, employees that I've ever had. And I think that as a leader, having a story like that is fantastic. And if, and if he had left and we can take the opportunity to get somebody in that, that could produce more, that would have been equally as powerful. But I feel it's like just, Taking the taking the risk and in, in in making yourself vulnerable and and if you can see that within somebody to actually have the conversation and and if you're gonna say you're gonna support them like you better be in it right I'm I'm here to support and make sure that that you're you're gonna do a better job and that person you know their responsibility in that that agreement is to show up and actually do it but I I just feel like more leaders need to be taking those opportunities and making the most of them. Yeah. And it starts with incentive alignment. I mean, we need to align the incentives of the people who are working for us and the people that are leading those folks. I think when I think about incentive alignment, the, the example that I think everyone can latch on to immediately is road construction. 
and we just look at road work and think, good God, why is this taking so long? I mean, I live in Philadelphia where we've been dealing with the expansion of 95. It feels like since I've been able to say 95. I mean, it feels like it's been going on forever. And you look at it and you, you go, well, the cones are out, but nobody's here. Like, what's, what's really happening? And I grew up in a union household. So my dad was a, a union carpenter. His whole family, most of his family, in fact, were, were, were union in some capacity. And I'll never forget him telling me that the first thing you learn when you walk onto a job site is the speed at which the crew is working. That is one of the most important lessons you learn as a new worker on a job site. doesn't matter how fast you can put up a sheet of drywall. It matters how fast the crew is putting up sheets of drywall because this is our pace. Don't make us look bad. Don't try to showboat. Fit in and go along because we don't get paid extra to finish early. So their alignment, their, their, their incentives are misaligned. What if instead we paid crews per job? And we paid supervisors and safety auditors hourly. So the crew is now incentivized to do it as fast as possible. The auditors and the foremen are incentivized to slow them down to make sure it's done right and safely. And we meet somewhere in the middle. There's a company out there right now who's doing a good job of this. They're called Spar Marketing. And they're the company that refaces or resets all of the store shelves in, in drugstores. So let's say, you know, a new brand of medicine is launched over the counter, something or other. And the display looks one way today, but the manufacturer wants it to look another way tomorrow. Spar sends their merchandisers into the drugstore with these pictures of what it should look like. And they reset the whole display. That's their job. Get in, get out, get it right. Spar realized that they wouldn't be as successful if they were paying their people hourly, because as it turns out, drugstores are generally air conditioned. They have sodas and candy available. So what's my motivation to leave on a hot summer's day? What they did instead was say, we're going to assign a value, a dollar value to this task being completed. And we're going to figure out what it should take on average. So let's say that a reset was estimated to take two hours and it's worth $300. If the merchandiser finishes in three hours, they get $300. Two hours, $300. One hour, $300. 90 minutes, $300. It doesn't matter how long it takes. What matters is that it gets done right. And to counterbalance that, the store manager at each client site, you know, whatever drugstore they're at that day, has to sign off on the work to say that it's been done right. The store manager is not going anywhere. They're paid hourly or they're on salary. So they're incentivized to make sure it's done right. Because if it wasn't, they're probably going to have to fix it when the person leaves. So SPAR has effectively figured out a way to incentivize their people to do better work. I'm sorry. Well, do good work, right? Or better work faster. I'd say because it's done faster, it's better. Because it's done faster and right, it's better. How else could we apply that in different parts of our professional life, or, you know, again, if you take the example of road work in our personal life, could we get road construction done faster? These are the things Fantastic I think Fantastic thought. <laughs> no, I would personally love my road construction, which never ends to get done faster as well. Um, I love this conversation. I could spend another hour with you. Um, maybe we'll bring you back. I'd love to have you back. Uh, before we let you go though, Gregory, what is one thing, or maybe a couple things that you would love to leave with our audience that you haven't had a chance to talk about or things you want to reinforce today? Yeah. So uh, thank you for asking that because you had asked earlier about some of the skills 
uh, you know, we talked about emotional intelligence and, and, and empathy. You were saying, what are the other ones? So we don't really have time to go into it. Uh, but what I do want to offer to your audience, uh, that would be a whole other podcast, is if they text the word keys, K-E-Y-S, if they text that word to 33777, um, they're going to get a response text from me. It's going to ask for your name and your email. I will then send you a one sheet of these seven keys of success. I'm not going to spam you. I don't put you into some email filter where you get 5,000 stupid emails from me. It's just to help get you this one sheet. What that's going to show you are these seven keys that I identified. And take a look at them. If they don't resonate with you, no biggie. But if one jumps out and you go, oh man, this, we could work on this in our organization. That's a great place to start. You Google in that word and TED Talks and you'll find somebody. This is not a, you know, like a shameless plug to buy my services. I'd love to help your organization too. But each one of these keys, there's a plethora of material out there. If you want to create the training, go for it. If you want somebody who's already created it, give me a buzz. Um, but then I'd also invite your listeners to connect with me on, on LinkedIn or check out my website and reach out and let me know what you thought of this podcast, what was valuable. Uh, if you disagree with me, share that too, because that's how we grow is by sharing you know, our, our opinions. Um, I just want to thank the three of you for giving me the opportunity to come in here and, and share my thoughts with you. I've had a, had a lot of fun chatting. Gregory, you've been awesome. We'll, we'll be sure to invite you back because I know you have more to share. Uh, could you do me a favor, share your email address and website with our audience um, and then repeat. We'll put the, uh, the keys text in there for everybody as well. Sure. Uh, so my email is greg at gregoryoffner.com and my website is gregoryoffner.com. So that's uh, O, F as in Frank, F as in Frank, N-E-R, gregoryoffner.com. Actually, an easier one, just type in cgregspeak.com and that'll take you there. That's fantastic. And remember, folks, don't ask him to ever sing Bohemian Rhapsody because that'd be just really a bad Never. <laughs> Daniel son. <laughs> yes, Scott. Could you do us a favor and tell our audience how they could connect with us, please? All right, party people. If you haven't already, or maybe even if you have, email us at learningnerdscast at gmail.com. Email us any questions you might have, join in on the conversation. Tell us what type of training you wish you had as you were getting started in your career. And tell us if you like your job or not. That would be kind of nifty to know. If you're on Facebook, hit us up at Learning Nerds. And finally, for all of our Instagram peeps, Fab Learning Nerds. Scott? Thanks, Dan. Hey, everybody. If you could do me a favor, hit subscribe. We'd love to have you as a regular listener and share this out with your friends. If you're on iTunes, Stitcher, Wherever you get a podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear how we're doing. We'd love to hear um, how Greg's doing. And uh, that allows us to get uh, more people like yourselves listening to our show. Until then, I'm Scott. I'm Dan. I'm Abby. And I'm Greg. And we're your fabulous learning nerds. And we are out. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous Learning Nerds. You know, there are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment of offerings. If you're, if you're thinking of giving it a try, if you think it would give it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make 
your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.